Hey, grab a seat. Hello. Good morning. So glad to see you. It's summer. Guys, it's summer. It's summer. It's summer. We made it. That just cold, unbearable winter is over. All right. Let's go to 1 Peter. And uh, we've, been, we've been talking a little bit about uh, what, what exactly the church is and supposed to be, 1 Peter chapter 2. And, and if you remember, um, church isn't a place you go. So none of you have come to church. You, you came to 2801 Brea Boulevard. You came to a building. Okay? The church is a people. And wherever you are, their church is. So Jesus will say things like, wherever two or more are gathered, there I am, right? Church is a, a community. And, and so it's not a program, not a place, it is a people called out of human history so that God may dwell in them and so that God may show the world through them what God is like. It's a pretty exalted job description, much more than just the hour and five minute weekly teaching, singing event that we do hear and call a service. And so we've just been trying to refresh our memories as to what this is for and why we do the things that we do. Now, to set up First Peter, I've got 10 iPad slides, and I know you love it. And so this is a lot of content, but it sets the table for what we're about to discuss. So Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. God dwelt among His people without any mediation. There were no altars. There were no sacrifices. God walked in the cool of the day with the humans He had made. And the image bearers, we read in Genesis 1 and 2, were almost priestly in their roles in taking care of the garden and stewarding it and tending it. So you get this image of kind of God dwelling in a temple with priests, but no sacrifices or altars. God just being there in an unmediated kind of way. Now, Genesis 3, uh, the second part of Genesis 3 happens. And instead of the shalom and the peace and the intimacy that God had intended for His creation, now we get rebellion, we get disobedience, we get alienation, separation, blame, fear, guilt, the whole thing. And so we begin at that point to read about altars and sacrifices throughout the rest of Genesis. God forms a community of Abraham's descendants into a nation called Israel. That nation is enslaved, and God comes to their rescue and takes them to a mountain called Sinai. Now, in Mount Sinai, he gives them, if you've ever read the book, second half of the book of Exodus, if you've ever read uh, Leviticus, if you've ever read some of Numbers, and certainly recapitulated Deuteronomy, you read about this. You read about something called the tabernacle, or it will be developed into the temple. You read about a priesthood, and you read about a sacrificial system. Now, God dwelling on earth looks a little differently than it did in the Garden of Eden. Now, it's important that you understand, this is all grace. God gives this to a people He's already rescued. Do you see that? This isn't for them to do to be rescued. This is, they've been rescued, now here's how to live as the people of God. And so, what you read uh, throughout the uh, Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, is... Verses like this, uh, Exodus 25, have Israel make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. God's desire was to dwell among his people. He also sets apart priests in that community. Now the whole community 
was to be a priestly kingdom, but within that kingdom, there were set-apart priests. So have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons, there they are, so they may serve me as priests. And then you read about sacrifices, right? The first six chapters of the book of Leviticus are wonderfully detailed about the different kinds of sacrifices you were to offer. So you've got burnt offerings, grain, fellowship sin, guilt offerings, and so on. Different festivals celebrated different aspects. You had something called the Day of Atonement, you would make sacrifices, and so on. So, we go from Sinai, excuse me, we go from Eden, where there was just intimacy, to now we have the sacrificial system that has three parts. A temple or tabernacle, a priesthood, and the offering of sacrifices. You following me so far? Okay, awesome. Now, here comes Jesus, and to give away the punchline, Jesus becomes all those things, right? So, in John chapter 1, we're told that God Himself tabernacled or dwelt among us. That no longer was God residing in a tent or a temple, He was now in a person. He was Jesus of Nazareth. And... Uh, In the book of John chapter 2, Jesus refers to himself as the temple. And he did temple things. So, in the first century, the way you got forgiveness of sins was you went to the temple in Jerusalem. You offered a sacrifice to priests. What's Jesus do to forgive people? You're forgiven. You're forgiven. So, he becomes a roving temple around the Galilee. We also know from later New Testament writings, particularly the book of Hebrews, that Jesus has now become our high priest and he himself was the sacrifice that ended the need for every other sacrifice. So you read things like Hebrews 4, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Unlike, this is Hebrews 7, unlike other high priests, he does not offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins and then for the sins of others. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered what? Himself. Otherwise, Hebrews 9, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So what you have is in the Garden of Eden, you have unmediated presence. At Mount Sinai, you have temple, priesthood, sacrifices. You have Jesus who comes as the temple, tabernacle, as the high priest, himself the sacrifice. Are you with me so far? Yes. So the right answer is always Jesus. Right? We know that. So that's part of it. But the New Testament doesn't stop there. Remember, we're setting up 1 Peter chapter 2. What the New Testament writers do is they take temple, priesthood, sacrifices and apply it to who? To the church. To you. So, it doesn't stop there. All of those in Christ are the temple, the priesthood, and we offer sacrifices. Okay, so we're studying something called ecclesiology, which is the theology of the ecclesia, the church, the people. And so in Christ, the church is referred to as the temple, where God dwells. The church is referred to as the priesthood, and the church offers sacrifices. 1 Peter chapter 2, 
Verse 4. That was background. That was all. That was awesome. Yeah, we got it. We're good. It's 10 o'clock. And it's summer. Evidently, there was a horse race yesterday. Yeah, who? Don't even. Yep, that's awesome. I was going to say I didn't even notice, but, but just... 1 Peter chapter 2, you know, you know we're in the throes of non-football season when we're watching horses. That's all I'm going to say. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, as you, church, come to him, Jesus, the living stone, now this is an Old Testament reference, we don't have time to look at, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual what? House or temple is the other way to translate it. To be a holy what? Offering spiritual what? Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now leave that up there for a second. I, if you've been around church, you've heard this before. So no doubt, no new information here. But I want to spend a lot of time exploring the implications of this. I want to work backwards. So I want to talk about, I want to work backwards in the sentence. I want to talk about spiritual sacrifices first. Then I want to talk about what it means to be a priesthood, a holy priesthood. And then I want to talk about what it means to be a spiritual house. All right? So from this point forward, three words I want you to focus on. Sacrifice, priesthood, house. And we're going to explore what it means if you actually believe that's what this is. All right? Mm. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Let's talk about sacrifices. If you've noticed, we don't have any animals here. Um, we're no, there's nobody in the back with lambs. We don't, we're not doing that anymore, right? Jesus fulfilled, completed that image of a sacrificial system but according to peter we still offer sacrifices now he doesn't explain exactly what that means but other new testament writers do so here's romans chapter 12 a passage uh, familiar to many of you once i get there romans chapter 12 verse 1 so paul's written 11 just thick chapters outlining god's mercy and he says I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercy I've just outlined for 11 chapters, to offer your what? Your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, I love the image of a living sacrifice because the, the sacrifices in the Old Testament were dead ones, correct? That was the point. You killed them. The problem with living sacrifices, so the old seminary joke goes, is that they keep crawling off of the altar, right? I mean, that's the, that's the joke, is living sacrifices can keep moving around. But, but I want you to notice, you take the old stones of the temple, and now Peter calls them living stones. You take the old sacrificial system of animals, and now we have living sacrifices. So you, the biggest sacrifice you bring is you. Offer your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. And this is your reasonable act of worship. So whenever whenever we think about worship and think about singing, that that is exactly one millionth of what worship turns out to be. Right? 
Because your singing is irrelevant next to the way you live the rest of your life. Your singing either contradicts your life or validates it. But singing is never the point of worship. The point of worship is bringing you as a sacrifice. And notice, it's, it's not bringing you and it doesn't cost you anything. No, no, no. The whole emphasis of discipleship to Jesus is surrender. And so it's bringing you as a sacrifice, saying, okay, God, here I am, whatever you want. That you don't just do one time, correct? We do that over and over and over and over. Here's, uh, Billy alluded to this passage. Thanks, Billy, for stealing thunder. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. That's what I'm saying, Chip. Hebrews chapter 13. Verse uh, 15, again, we read about spiritual sacrifices. Verse 15, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a what? Of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Now think about that image. I profess lots of things. But when it is that the church, why do we sing for crying out loud? Why not just turn this into like an hour-long Bible study, right? And some of you would go, yeah, let's do that. And some of you would go, no, let's cut the Bible study and just do more singing. I get that. But the early church has always sung because Old Testament Israel sang, right? There's something, and, and some of the Psalms are very repetitive, right? His love endures forever, his love endures forever, his love endures forever. So this whole repetition, who cares, I mean, what you have is the sacrifice of praise, meaning the style of music is not relevant because it's a sacrifice of praise. It means that, as Billy was saying, it's not whether or not you feel it. The point of singing isn't warm, fuzzy feelings. The point of singing is that he's worth it. And we're reminding our lips that. We're reminding our imaginations that. We're reminding our minds and hearts that, right? So it's a sacrifice. Notice, and then he continues, he says, and do not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So, what? See, here's the good news and the bad news. Bad news, no, good news, we don't sacrifice animals. That's the good news. The bad news is now we give everything. See, you could get away with, oh, I gave my animal. Now it's, nope, he wants the whole thing. In the Old Testament, giving was 10%. It was called a tithe. In the New Testament, no percentage is ever given. As if you could say, I gave 10% and I'm done. Because he wants all of it. So it's much more radical, and it's much more beautiful. Why? Because we are in Christ. We bring spiritual sacrifices. So, when you come to a gathering of the church community, and your primary question is, what do I get out of it? Was I fed? Did I like it? Understand the sin implicit in those questions. Because that's irrelevant. The gathering of the church is about what you bring You bring you. You bring praise. 
You bring kindness and generosity. Now, of course, we receive. Of course. And, and hallelujah, we receive. But the point of the gathering isn't the receiving. The point of the gathering is the bringing yet again. Because I keep crawling off the altar over and over and over. Are you with me? Because if this is true, and we offer spiritual sacrifices, then it ain't about a paid professional on a stage while the rest of you watch. You have an active part to play in all of this. And right now you're actively listening or thinking about lunch or wondering when this will be over. (laughs) Now, so the first word was sacrifice. Spoke briefly about that. Second word was, remember? Priesthood. Patty, you were going to say it. I knew you were going to say it. Priesthood. Peter refers to us as a priesthood. Now, think about the significance of this. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Oh, how are we doing, guys? We okay? Tim? See, I'm feeling a little off because Don Frank is in that seat and he should be right behind Tim. And nobody knows that that's Don Frank's seat. Nobody knows that. It, so don't feel bad about that. But the, my sermon chi is off because Don is in a different seat. So... And you in the, in the plaid there, you're sitting next to him. So it spreads. <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4. So if, if, you, if you've studied church history at all, uh, which is kind of depressing, there were some things along the way that, got, we, that, that the church got right. And there were these corrections that we made. And one of the great things, something called the Reformation, was the re-emphasis of something they called the priesthood of the believer. It was the idea that people are used differently in God's kingdom, but that's on the basis of gifts, not on the basis of importance. There isn't a hierarchy. Jesus is the only mediator. And that you, as a Christian, are a priest and minister. So Paul will describe the gathering this way. Notice verse 11. Many of you are familiar with this passage. So Christ himself gave. Ephesians 4. Did I say 4? Jenny? So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to the church. Why? To equip who? For works of Service. Now the word service is the word ministry. It's where we get the word deacon. In other words, how many ministers do we have at our church? However many people who are sincerely following Jesus there are, correct? Who all has a ministry? Every single person. And some of you have ministry in schools. Some of you have ministry in homes. Some of you have ministry in hospitals. Some of you have ministry in businesses. But you all got one. And so, the beautiful thing, notice, bless you. He gives the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, think about that. Are there leaders and have there been leaders in church gatherings? Yes. We read of Paul talking to overseers and deacons and elders and yes, yes, yes. But what's the point of those people? 
The point of those people isn't to do ministry, correct? The point of those people is to give ministry away. Because you all have ministry sitting right in front of you in your real life. In carpool and club soccer and all of the craziness of school and work and retirement, whatever else, ministry sits before you. And so the goal, preach. What did you say? The jail? When you're visiting. Yes. I just want to make sure you were just visiting. (laughs) She, She stuck her tongue out at me now. So, think about the implications for a church. If you've been here for any length of time, and you are not more equipped and trained and mended for the ministry of your real life, then we've failed you. That's just true. Doesn't matter if you liked it or it was good or not, it was, were you more equipped? That's the goal of, this is a staff meeting, brothers and sisters, Look around you. This is staff. This is our staff meeting. It really is. You have to begin to see and believe that what you do is as significant as anything else you do. When you're working in your real life and you're working in the business world and you think, oh, this is just the secular world. Here's the church world. You're like, no, those, those distinctions don't exist anymore. Because you are the church. Christ in you. And you all have ministry before you. So, A better way to critique church isn't to say, hey, did the paid professional who talked on the stage do a good job? It's standing at the door and saying, hey, how how did you do this week? How was your ministry this week? How was your ministry this week? Right? People will say to me, hey, I'm thinking about getting in the ministry. And by that, they mean work for a church. And I want to say, too late. It's too late. You've been in the whole time. How does it feel to be in the ministry? People will ask me. I don't know. You tell me. You're in it too. I mean, if people began to see their real lives this way, then you would come here for entirely different reasons. Correct? Because when you're out there, you're dealing with crazy people and ethical situations and all sorts of nonsense, and you need a place where you can profess again the name of Jesus freely. You need a place where your mind is renewed. You need a place where you're rubbing shoulders with other believers to gain the courage, the comfort, the healing, the strength to go out yet again. Correct? So this becomes unbelievably important for what it is you are supposed to be doing the rest of your life. And that's how you should see it. If you're not more equipped, if you're not better trained, if God isn't bringing about the healing and restoration, then then you need to find another community because we're letting you down. Because that's the goal. The goal isn't that you just learn more Bible stuff. The goal is that that Bible stuff shapes you in a way that causes you to engage your real life differently. And to believe that there are burning bushes all around you. And that nothing anymore is off limits for God to use or meet you in. So how does this play for a church? Now this, you're going to love this. I don't know if it's true, but it requires more iPad and my messy handwriting. I want to talk about how we organize as a church to facilitate this. Because here's the crazy thing about a church. A church is an organism. It's a living, breathing organism of people. And it's an organization that legally requires budgets and 
officials and HR policies and all kinds of crazy things. So I, I want to just spend two minutes on how does this whole thing play out if it's true. So we are a congregational church, which means we are, we are a part of a denomination called the First, not the First, the Evangelical Free Church of America. That denomination says a church is congregational when the members of the church decide at least four things. First, they, uh, they appoint, this, then choose the senior pastor. Secondly, they affirm or elect the senior leadership team. Thirdly, they vote on the purchase or sale of property. And fourthly, they vote on uh, any changes to the church bylaws. Now what our church does is our church gives ministry away in terms of oversight to a group of people called elders. We just had an election of elders. Now these people are not representatives of constituencies. These are people, hopefully, who demonstrate spiritual maturity, giftedness, who are known in the body to some degree, and who are already eldering. And the point of these folks is to shepherd, and it's to protect... And it's to guard against false doctrine. It's to ensure the, well, the spiritual well-being of the church. But how many... We have, what, 10 elders? How can a church of 10 elders oversee 5,000 people? Well, they can't. So what they do is they give ministry away to a, a group of people called staff people. Some of these are paid. Some of these are unpaid. So staff just doesn't mean you're receiving a paycheck. <laughs> so now what's the role of these people equip who oh look at this look at this so you have the congregation you have elders you have staff who equip congregation baby Right? That's how this sucker is supposed to work. Now, it's not perfect because there are sinful people everywhere. Welcome to the club. But in theory, here's how it works. The congregation gives ministry away to the elders. The elders give ministry away to the staff, paid and unpaid. The staff give ministry away to the church. And there are two kinds of ministry we give away. First, we give away ministry that's done in here on the weekend. So we need always parking people. And we need uh, youth uh, ministry leaders. And we need children's ministry volunteers. And ushers and greeters. And part of that is a sacrifice of worship. Yes. For all of you who are participating that way. But we're also doing and equipping and unleashing, hopefully, ministry for out there. And so what we don't want to do is so fill your calendar with church stuff, you don't have time for your neighbors and your friends. And if you're going to lead a ministry in our church, oh no, I just lost it. I know, but I lost it on this thing. have a moment of silence <laughs> if you're going to lead a, a ministry in our church you're going to do it with a team so our church is now full of things called ministry teams 
Some of these we've called boards before and are going into ministry teams. But here's the idea. You say, let's say Miss Patty over here. One of my favorites. So Miss Patty, 83. She and I got to hold hands a lot in Israel. Justy was present, so it was okay. So let's say Miss Patty says, I have the best idea for a ministry. I'm going to do yoga. No? I was trying to think of something crazy. She's going to do Zumba. We have a Zumba. All right, let's say you're in jail. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Let's say Miss Patty has some sort of crazy ministry that she wants to do. Guess what we're going to ask her to do? Get a team of people together to do it with you. The days of, hey, I'm staff and you're my volunteers, we just don't see it that way. What we see is you all have ministry, you all have gifts, you all have things to bring. And we want to help. That's our purpose, that's our goal. Because we believe that what Jesus wants to do in and through you is far more significant than how much participation he wants on a Sunday morning. He wants your whole real life. And this, this is to help facilitate that. Are you with me on this point? So, Miss Patty, I'm going to think of a ministry for you that I can use next service. So we talked sacrifice, talked priesthood. Do you remember the third word? House. Because the sacrificial system included a dwelling place for God, priest sacrifices. And we'll end with this. To say that we are being formed into a house where God dwells. We actually covered this, if you remember, several weeks ago. But I want to remind you of the implication simply of it. It means this. That in Jesus, there is no other sacrifice required to be rescued by Him. This is all grace. You've already got it. You're already blessed. You've got the Spirit. You've got the Scriptures. You've got the community of God. You've got it. None of this is ever done in the context of got to. It's all done in the context of get to. Right? This is all grace. Which means there are no other mediators. There is no other apparatus. There is no temple. No priest. No anything you got to go through to get to Him. He just throws the doors wide open. He says, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the end of the story. There's nothing left for you to do except say yes. And after you say yes, as what, it's what He's done with the people of God from the very beginning of them. He then says, great. Now let's get to work. The privilege then is of extending that same grace to everybody else. And so do you see the beauty of the story? Unmediated presence is how the Bible begins. And it ends that same way in Revelation 21 and 22. But after the fall, you have temple, priesthood, sacrifice. Fulfilled in Jesus, and because we are now in Him, we become those things too. Now we're, we're, we're not high priests, we only got one of those. But we no longer distinguish ourselves on the basis of importance. We distinguish ourselves on the basis of giftedness, and that's it. 
And so Paul will use the image of a body. He'll say, listen, who, how can the eyes say to the fingers, you're not needed? How can the toes, right, say to the elbows, we'd be better off without you? I mean, he uses such an organic picture to describe that you are needed here. You have a part to play here. We're impoverished without you in some way, shape, or form contributing. And then we're impoverished if we don't equip and send and train and bless for you to then return to where you find yourself all week. That's how this is supposed to go. And when that stuff happens, the body begins to mature into the kind of thing Jesus died for. So close your eyes if you would. And and I'm thinking, I don't know, I'm thinking, just listen to me for a second, with your eyes closed, because it's probably better to not have to see this. But, but just think about this for a second. The good news of the priesthood of all believers is that everyone gets to play. The bad news is that everyone gets to play. And so as we work out being a church full of sinful people, we hurt each other. And that's why Paul spends so much time saying, hey, forgive each other, guy. Forgive each other. Bless each other, encourage one another, strengthen one another. All of those presuppose the continuing and progressive sanctification of the membership. And so maybe you're here and you've been hurt by this thing called the church. And maybe for you, a sacrifice of worship would look like seeking out reconciliation, asking forgiveness and being forgiven and forgiving others. Maybe, maybe for you it's just the recognition that it's all still a work in progress and there's no perfect community out there. Maybe for you, you're somebody that has burning bushes all over your life and you're just not paying attention. And so for you to actually engage your real life as ministry would be a transformative thing. Or maybe you're here and you live under the, the curse of guilt and the weight of shame and you still think there's some sacrifice you've got to give to be acceptable to Jesus. And we just say, no, 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 there's one perfect one that ended the need for all others. And perhaps for you, worship looks like the surrendering of you to Him. Not just as a one-time thing, but as a way of living. And so, Father, Lord, you know how far short we fall. And yet, this bride of yours is indestructible. This bride of yours is beautiful because of your grace and your love for it. And so, God, we just rejoice in that, that you have paid everything so that we could walk freely as your children, working this out as we go. So we bless you and we bring now a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that profess your name.